Grab a bowl and dig into this. The Serial Entrepreneur by Startups Magazine. We interview the most innovative startups at the moment, entrepreneurs that are making a mark, and those dedicated to helping startups succeed. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Serial Entrepreneur podcast. Today I'm joined by Steve Salvin, CEO of Amy. Steve is a serial entrepreneur and has worked in tech since the 80s and even studied AI at university. Amy is one of the UK's largest AI data insight platforms. So before we begin with the bulk of the questions, we always ask our signature icebreaker because we're called Serial Entrepreneur Podcast. So what's your favourite breakfast cereal and why? So hi Anna, thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, I'm not a big breakfast, in fact, I can't remember the last time I had breakfast. Um, but for me, cereal's become a bit of a late night munchy option. And right now, my, my go-to is some they call mini chocolate shreddies. I've, I've been persuaded by my wife that the Aldi version is the best one and they're called chocolate wheat if you fancy trying them. <laughs> I won't lie though, chocolate shreddies are one of my, my top cereals too. <laughs> so could you introduce yourself and tell me a bit about your background? Sure, yeah, I'm Steve, Steve Salvin. I'm the proud father of two, Cameron and George. Um, I'm married to Lisa. Um, who is Amy's employee number two and our operations director. I'm sure we'll circle back on that. I fell for the lockdown dog um, and now I've got Coco, who's a Border Terrier uh, toy poodle cross. Um, She comes to the office every day now and the staff actually have named her the head of happiness. So she's kind of become part of the the journey as well. Um, I was born in Blackburn in 1969, which makes me 54. And as a result, I'm a suffering Blackburn Rovers fan. Uh, I moved to Telford in 1981, where I went to high school. Uh, And then I graduated from uh, the University of Manchester in 1990. And just in case anyone thinks that that sounds impressive, um, I got a beer beer drinker's degree at university, a 2-2, which I was super proud of at the time. (laughs) You got a degree. Who cares what it is? <laughs> exactly. I, I travelled all around the world with work, but um, Milton Keynes is my home. Um, uh, you know, it's somewhere that I've lived for a while. I've raised a family and it's a great place to run a, a technology firm. And I guess the final thing I'd say is um, I'm a sports fan. Um, I, I played football and rugby and ran when I was younger. Um, I lo- I'm loving the World Cup at the minute. And um, as you can probably tell by my background, I like playing pool. Um, I love hiking. I'm just back from two weeks in Scotland hiking as well. So what would you say drew you into the field of technology? As a kid, I was, I was pretty good at maths. And I got um, I was one of a cohort that did my maths a couple of years early at school. And that allowed me to take on a couple of extra GCSEs. And I did statistics and computer science. Reflecting back on kind of personal interest, I didn't see myself as a nerd, but I probably was. I know my um, my sister got a comic that was Debbie. We got this comic once a week. My brother got 2000 AD, and I ended up getting a, a computer comic where they used to print bits of code in there, and I'd copy the code and play around with it and kind of got myself into coding. And I think it was a combination of those two things that drew me then to college and university to carry on with computer science. That's interesting. So it really struck you from an early age that, that was what you were interested in. Yeah, I think it was a, a combination of 
you know, my dad bought me a personal computer when they were quite rare at the time. Um, it was a Dragon 32. Um, and it was just playing games and then doing a bit of coding. It just became a bug. Um, and I think my mathematical brain, maths and coding seemed to go well together. So, yeah, I just got the bug for it and it went from there. That's great. So how has the journey been like getting to where you are now? It's been, honestly, it's been fun. I'm, I'm, I feel there's very few days where I haven't looked forward to working. It's been something, it's been a, a passion and a hobby for me. Um, I started my career at a firm called EDS. It's now Hewlett Packard. And it was at a time when uh, mainframes were on the decline and PCs and client server technology, new database architectures were coming to the fore and, and markets like banks and uh, insurance companies were using it to revolutionize and, and, and change their front end and back end. What they were trying to do was give customers like me and you the opportunity to call to do our banking or sort of engine insurance policy. And ultimately it led to then the internet to be able to do that online. And, you know, I still, I still, it still amazes me to think that, you know, we used to have to go to the bank to get some cash out or to put some money in or, or go to an insurance broker in the high street to get a policy or change your policy. Um, so I was part of that, that start of that journey of really transforming. It was really that kind of digital revolution and and i went through a series of different companies i ended up doing a startup when i was 27 i didn't really expect to do it but i was working with halifax now part of lloyd's um, and they gave me the chance to grow a team around me um, which i grew to about 20 people um, and i sold that to a north american software company three years later and that got bought by another company that ultimately I became the vice president of EMEA for. And, you know, so I did a couple of jobs like that, but the entrepreneurial side in me came out and I wanted to do that again. So started Amy again um, in 2007. That, that was part of a, a recruitment business, but ultimately it didn't feel right. The differences in culture and strategy. So me and a few of the other team, we completed an MBO in 2013. Um, and that started our journey. And Amy, we're kind of coming up to a 10-year anniversary in November. So, yeah, it's been a, a career really all centred around data and digital transformation. That's interesting. There's a lot of talk in the industry that's, that basically says like second-time founders don't, have, don't feel that same spark when, about their business. But obviously, you, you've been going so long. Do you feel like that's true or not? I'd say the opposite of that. It's it, it's given me so much power. What whilst I could I can say that um, I did something quite young, unexpected, different. It was exciting. I look back and there were so many things that I wish I had done differently. So many mistakes that I made. You know, ultimately the company that I sold that business to went bust about four months later, and and ultimately it turned out to be a terrible decision. So given getting the opportunity to do that again, I feel like I can learn from all those mistakes. Um, and somehow I feel like that first time has prepared me to get this right and smash it out this time. Yeah, almost like your first time was kind of like the practice run and this is like the real life, this is going on now. <laughs> so how do you see the future of technology evolving? 
Well, I mean, you know, it's it's been a, a massive transformation in in my lifetime, but that's over thirty years. What seems to be coming? Almost feel like we're going to do all of that again, but maybe in five or ten years. It's the it's the speed of of change that I think is breathtaking at the minute. I mean, I don't think anybody's not heard of AI or or, or used an AI model, probably ChatGPT, but the you know the the, the analysts, um, the, the futurologists are predicting that in the next five to ten years, seventy percent of everything we do will be done by AI. Um, you know, we also see uh, quantum computing. You know, the race to try and um, you know develop the first quantum computers, and theoretically, if they come off in the next few years, then that's going to force us to think, rethink everything around security, because those computers will be able to crack passwords, pretty much any password we've got today in seconds. So there's going to be some fundamental shifts that go on when that comes out. I think, you know, global economics, the, the things that are going on in the world at the moment, you know, the, the shift in power, I think is going to drive new requirements around things like blockchain. People need fast and more secure ways of communicating, things like transferring money. You know, we've been digitizing everything. It's inevitable that we're going to get digital money. Um, Things like mobile, I mean, in my lifetime, I think 2007, the iPhone came out and mobile has changed everything. People want to work from anywhere. They want to do anything from anywhere. So technology that helps that, like Apple's Vision Pro and kind of new technologies that are going to allow us to kind of have more immersive experience, AR and VR in the same headset means we can you know, do lots of things like we can do work calls, teams calls, we can watch videos, can play a game. And, and it's almost like in that world, the difference between reality and digital are becoming quite close. You know, I walk past my nephew playing FIFA on the PlayStation. And, you know, sometimes I'm confused if it's actually watching a real match or playing a game. So, do you know what I mean? These worlds are coming so close now, it's getting hard to tell the difference. So yeah, tons, tons of new technology. I mean, look at autonomous driving. We work with JLR and, you know, the world's preparing itself for electrification, autonomous cars. We won't own cars soon. Just imagine what that's going to have, the impact of that on freight and logistics and kind of everyday life. So lots and lots of things all happen at the same time. And I think it's super exciting. Yeah, it's definitely... I think what's kind of happening now and in the next five to ten years is going to be what people thought that 2000s was going to be like. When you see movies where they predict the 2000s are going to be so high-tech and there's going to be self-driving cars and all this, and now that's becoming a reality, kind of like 25, 30 years later after they were predicted that that was going to happen. So it is that technology's kind of really leaped. It hasn't just jumped ahead, it's leaped ahead and it's constantly evolving. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, if you look at things like SpaceX and Tesla, you know, the some of the disruptive companies out there, I mean, who would have thought, you know, a brand new startup could come out and beat the car industry and create, really drive electrification of cars and we're all gobsmacked at, you know, some of the, the innovation and 
adventures now that are coming through or SpaceX. I mean, it, it does feel like the movie, right? feels like the future is coming to us. Yeah, definitely so. That is really how it feels like. And I think it can be really exciting, but I feel like a lot of people are still really scared about how fast everything's developing. Yeah, I mean, I think as, as we get older and we see the, the rate of change happening, you know, we, we get an iPhone or, a, you know, a, an Android phone, you get a new phone every six months, 12 months, two years, whatever, and you see the pace of change. And you can see how the older people get, the more reluctant they are to give up that phone and get the new one. They're almost, they almost do it when they're forced to because that, that phone's not going to work anymore. I think as we get older, we do get a little bit scared of what's coming and we think about the impact on young people. But, you know, me personally, you know, I've, I've kind of ridden this journey and we've been kind of always at the forefront of new data and digital thinking. And I can't help but look at these things that are coming and just feel excited. I think the opportunities are going to be huge and, and young people just need to embrace it and, and get on with it. So I think it's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be a huge change, but I think it's life isn't going to be the way it is now. It's a lot of things are going to be completely different. And I think I understand the fear that people feel, but I think a lot of tech is being developed for good, essentially. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a positive person and I like to think about that. You are right. There are concerns and there are things that we need to be aware of and there are some scary stuff being developed. But, you know, the AI definitely for me is a force for good. There's some really, really clever things in there, some new experiences. I mean, I, you know, I tend to think about AI as something that can sit on your shoulder. It's a, you know, Microsoft call it a co-pilot. You know, there is a, it's something that can really be there constantly to help you in your life. We wouldn't want to go back. I like using Waze every day when I, when I drive around. Um, I wouldn't want to go back to a map. I don't think twice about using a calculator. You know, we want AI is something that can help us. You know, we can ask it questions, we can get answers, it can summarize things, it can spot weaknesses, it can give us clues, make suggestions, translate conversations, you know, pick out things that are going on and help you. So I see it as something that will become more and more powerful. And, and just like some people are really good at Googling and finding stuff, we're going we're gonna to learn how to be good at AI, good at asking questions and, and giving prompts and making sure that we can use it to, to, to give us the, the right information. So I think there's lots and lots of really cool things that are going to be developed and we should embrace that and look forward to it. Yeah. Well, actually, my next question was going to be, how can AI be used as a force for good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's for, from, if I think about the customers, the companies, the organisations that we help, a lot of them over the last decades have been drowning in data. You know, they've got decades and petabytes of, of information, hundreds of corporate systems. We've become hoarders where we save everything. We don't delete anything. And quite a lot of what they have is rubbish. And what AI is doing is it's forcing those organizations to have to think about the quality of their data. If you give AI bad information, you train it with bad stuff, it's going to give you rubbish answers. 
So one of the things that AI is doing is it's forcing organizations to go back and look at that and clean those things up. But ultimately when they do, it's going to be transformational, going to be able to do, I think McKinsey's have said 70% of everything that's done in the workplace at the moment will be able to be automated so that those people can do higher value activities. So there's some massive, massive benefits that are going to come. And as I said, from a personal point of view, you know, all of the, the, the experiences and the, the help that we can get to help us in our lives and make our lives more productive and easier is going to be really, really important. Definitely. So kind of moving on back to your company, Amy, you've bootstrapped and scaled Amy since 2013. How has that journey been for you? It's been brilliant. I've, like I said at the start of the call, I have genuinely loved every day. It comes with its challenges and can be scary at times, but it's been brilliant. That use the word bootstrapped. I guess I grew up through the dot com boom, where there was access to lots of VC private equity capital and all these stories of companies that came up with great ideas, pre revenue valuations, the multiples were off the scale. In, in Amy's journey since 2013, I think the world has changed. You know, organic, profitable growth is the new sexy. That's what people want to see. Um, and what that means is the, the journey is a little bit slower. Uh, we have to save up and make sure things are affordable before we do it. So um, it's taken, it took us five years to be able to get our own office. So we we kind of sublet and new service offices along the way. It took us five years to be able to set up uh, an R&D team and comfortably be able to afford that. Um, and not only that, um, because we've bootstrapped it and are, and are very careful with money, um, we've also um, included our customers in that journey. So from an R&D point of view, rather than just rush off and build something that we thought was great and take that to the market, We've taken our customers, in this case, Angling Water, Rolls-Royce and Jaguar Land Rover with us. And what that's done is it's made us go a little bit slower, um, but really made sure that we build features and build products that can be used by everybody. Um, and everyone can get value from it. And as a result, we've ended up creating better technology. So a little bit slower, a little bit less risky, but I think it's been sensible and, and it's been a good journey for us. Mm-hmm. If you could go back, would you change the way you've done it? Would you maybe still get VC funding or do you think you would have kept at what, you, what you've done this time? That's a great question. And honestly, I don't think I would be able to answer that properly unless I did it and then could compare the two. What, what I can say is that I sit here without any remorse or any regrets. Doing it this way we've still managed to create a 200 person tech company that's going to do 20 million pounds this year. We've got a couple of hundred customers that are household names that come to us that, that ask for our help. We've, we've written, you know, data strategies and digital strategies for some of the biggest and best companies in the world. We're trusted um, to help them. Um, and we've created a, a culture and a team honestly I think he's second to none and, and when I look back at what we've done in 10 years um, 
I don't think I'd change a thing. I'm, I'm super happy and I think we're right on the, the premise of, of, of great things and we'll continue to grow uh, funded by our own cash and our own working capital. That sounds great. And I think you've also been able to do it the exact way you've wanted to do it. There hasn't been anyone else coming in and saying, well, maybe you should be quicker at this or maybe you need to get to market faster. It's been all all you and your team. Yeah, that that's that is a good point. The um you know, we have considered you know, private equity and venture capital. Um we've looked at the market, so we've had conversations with different firms and advisors. And so far we haven't felt that's right for us. I'm not saying it won't be at some point. We may well go down that that route. But you you right, you have to consider if you're going to take people's money you're going to have to, you know, have new people around that table. They're going to bring their ideas, their experience, and you need to be sure that that's going to be complementary to the existing management team, the culture of the business. So it's a big, it's a big decision, and that's something that I've learned. You know, if and when we ever do that, it will be a big, a big shout, and we have to make sure that they're going to add value and, and I guess, increase. Make sure that they're going to increase the value of our business and help us on our journey for better things yeah because i think in the current landscape a lot of startups are kind of not pushed into it but that's what's expected of them they're expected to go down the vc route and i feel like that's where a lot of startups can get quite um muddled up with themselves and not not be as fully committed because that I don't know if this is right for me, but I feel like this is what other people think I should be doing on my journey. Yeah. No, I agree. If I go back to those dot-com, what was ingrained with, there was a big thing. You kind of got told over and over again, don't use your own money. Even if you've got money sitting there, don't use it. Kind of gamble with somebody else's. And ultimately, I think that's what it was. Um, We might as well have been playing roulette. When it's your own money, collectively, nine of us came together to fund our MBO. Then I think it does make you think twice about diluting that and bringing somebody else to the table. But the, the other thing Anna, I would say is, is that when you, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you've got a great idea, you've, you've started to build some service or product offering and get some customers biting on that. There is a part of you deep down that starts to worry about, you know, I've got something very special here. I may be slightly ahead of the market. I've got a unique offering. Um, and then you can have some wiser owls sitting around you going, we need to take some money here. Let's capitalize on this moment. Let's not miss out because suddenly someone's going to come and have built this. So you've got that things sitting on your shoulder all the time. Do we take it safe? Go with our money, don't dilute, we're in control. Or do we listen to those worries about the market moving quicker than we can move and we take that money? Some big decisions, you know, it's a bit like Brexit. You know, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. You just have to go with what you believe is right and and, and, and hope that <laughs> was the right decision. But big decisions. Yeah. So kind of on the same vein of you've, you learned the way that you wanted to do it. You wanted to 
bootstrap and self-fund. So what have been, what have some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned as a serial entrepreneur been? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I think the, I mentioned at, at, at the start of our chat that um, the first company that I set up, I sold it after three years and four months later, that company went bust. You know, I could argue that I, it was a spectacular failure that, that wasn't really on my watch. But what that did do is it did shape me in terms of making sure we had enough cash and making sure that not only did we have enough for a rainy day, we had enough for a rainy year. So and, and mentors um, and advisors around me have echoed that. So that's a massive thing for me is, is being in control of your own destiny. There are going to be, there are going to be things that happen like stock market crashes, like COVID, um, like customers unexpectedly, you know, going away. Um, and having a nest egg there of cash and access to cash is really, really important. And it's it's probably if one of the highest things that I would ask any entrepreneur to be to be aware of. And then something that I haven't been, you know, I've learned as I've, I've I, throughout my career, I've learned to make decisions quicker. Um, I think it's it's. Sometimes when it's ultimately your call and you've got to make the decision as the entrepreneur, you know, you, you go and listen to lots of people, you get lots of advice, lots of opinions. But one thing I've learned is you're never going to make everyone happy. Someone told me once, if you walk down Oxford Street and started handing out £20 notes, there'd be people who complained about it. So you've just got to um, make a decision on what you believe. Um, and if it's a disaster, at least it was your disaster. Um, there's nothing worse than failing and wishing you'd listen to your own instincts. So there are two bits of advice I would pass on. That is some good advice, especially with the decision-making. I think a big part of it is also um, you never want to make a decision based off what other people are saying and then it goes wrong and you're like, now, now I feel like I have someone to blame where you know if you made the decision, you'd be like, well, that was it. But then it can sometimes feel, even if they're people working really close with you, there's always parts of your mind that are like, they should have known this was going to happen, even though no one would have known what would have happened. Yeah. I mean, you know, listening to old, wiser people who've been around the block a few times that are in your ear passionately telling you that, you know, to, to, get, to take this one particular option and your heart and head are telling you something else, but you kind of reluctantly go with them. It's, it's awful. I mean, I, I call it the Mourinho, you know, do a Mourinho, you know, um, not everyone's cup of tea, but you know, at least he makes a decision, communicates that loud and proud and we all go with it. Um, and if it doesn't work, so be it. We'll learn from that and make another one. I think that's what I've learned is, just make decisions and get on with it. Communicate it loud and proud. Everyone gets behind you and we can laugh at it if it, if it fails. It doesn't really matter. At least we're moving forward. Yeah, that that is some great advice, to be fair. So you're a very strong mental health awareness advocate. Why is this so important to you? Yeah, when I, when I was running that first startup, 
uh, in my days in, in Halifax in Yorkshire, I found myself going to the doctors you know, probably half a dozen times within a few months, um, having getting shooting pains down my arm and tingly pins and needles and whatnot. I kept feeling that I was going to have a heart attack at some point. I go to the GP, kind of do the usual test. Uh, everything was fine. And the GP would say, eat less, work less, drink less, and do some exercise. And I'd come out of there frustrated because I felt like he hadn't, you know, identified some critical thing that was going on physically with me. Um, I had a, bo a, a bottle of Pepto-Bismol on my desk, um, a big one that I used to drink neat out of the bottle to quell my heartburn. And I also remember um, struggling to sleep at night and kind of waking up and I'd often get up and have a cold shower in the middle of the night, just trying to relax. Um, and I didn't, I, genuinely, I didn't recognize that I was struggling with mental health, mainly because I was the happiest that I'd ever been. Genuinely, it, it was such a buzz what we was doing. I'd never been as, as, as wealthy. I would never been as happy. But on the advice of my GPO, we reluctantly went to see a psychotherapist. And I learned in three or four sessions about the science of what was going on, the science of kind of my, what was happening physically and how that was kind of manifesting through my mental health. And he also taught me some techniques um, of how to cope um, and break the triggers, you know, when those kind of moments of anxiety were coming and how to get on top of that and, and break them. Um, and genuinely, it was life-changing. It, it affected everything to do with my personal life and my work. Um, and I'd say within six to 12 months, you know, I was, I was back on top. I just felt that it was a story that, you know, genuinely, like, opened my eyes. I actually felt at the time, weirdly, that the government should mandate every 30-year-old went through something like that because it was, I know that's a crazy thing to say, but it was, such a, it was such a simple thing that armed me with such power. And so I found myself, you know, wanting to talk about that within, with my, within my company. I look at some of the younger people that are coming into the workplace. I can often see some of the stresses and hard work they're putting in. So I feel like if I can talk about it and other senior people in my team can talk about it, then, you know, hopefully people can learn from that and feel like it's something that they can also tackle if and when it happens to them. Yeah. So how do you think businesses can look after the mental well-being of their employees and how do you think founders can also look after their own mental health while dealing in such a high-stress situation? On the second part first, listen to the advice of my doctors back in the day, work less, eat less, drink less and do some exercise. I think they are the, the ingredients of a, of, a, of a healthy life physically and mentally. I think the two things are you know, intrinsically linked. So I definitely do that. And if, if, we're finding that things are getting on top of us because, you know, things, 
your mental health can deteriorate for all sorts of reasons, you know, in and out of work. And it's surprising what the triggers can be. And if, if you don't jump on it and get on top of it, it's surprising how quickly it can spiral and then start, you know, getting in the way of you being able to perform. And ultimately it can be crippling. So I think from my point of view, the number one at work is to talk about it. Um, you know, if, if as an entrepreneur, if it's not happened to you, then, you know, find people it has happened, either experts or other people in your company and, and talk about it, make it something that's easy and cool to talk about. And then I would say, go and look at what are the different um, pathways, the different tools, the different services that are out there. There's so many that are either free or very inexpensive. And I would advise that you create as many opportunities to access that help as you possibly can, because everyone's different and, and you know, we all work in different ways. So that kind of, I do, I offer this mental health thing for my team might not fit three quarters of your people. Um, one, one of the, the things that we did after implementing probably at least half a dozen different opportunities to access help one things that we decided to do was implement a policy that also said, if you want to go and see a counselor or a psychotherapist, you're, you can do that and expense it and no questions will be asked and you can do that for you or anyone in your family. Because often stress can come from, you know, your partner or your children as well. So it's not, not it's sometimes not even you. So go and access that. And, and, and when I look back, you know, it's literally a few thousand pounds a year. And, you know, touch wood so far, everyone that, that's worked for it, that, that have come out and, and needed help, they've gone and accessed that and they've managed to be able to cope with it and are still with us, still enjoying the journey. And, and, and I do think at the, at the end, it will be one of the things that I look back and feel the proudest of. Yeah. I think what you're doing is really good with kind of also allowing people to find their own help and be able to expense it because I feel there is a fear that people can feel in the workplace that if there's something that is offered by the company itself people are often scared that things they're going to say or the way they feel will be relayed to the company even though that may that is probably not the case but I feel when people are allowed to go find something that works for them knowing it can also be covered can be such a help for a lot of people too. Yeah, no, again, you're making the same point, but I, I, I do agree with you. I mean, even taking a sick day. So, you know, you have to, you take a sick day on whatever system that you've got and you have to put a reason in there. You have to call somebody and have a conversation. Why you're not, what, you know, why you're going to take that. And we went through a process of, of saying, okay, you know, you can have a mental health day if you need it. But even someone stating that would could make them feel uncomfortable to the point that they would hide it rather than take the break. So we ended up through a collaboration, you know, with a with a, a team, we ended up coming up with a um, we've redefined a sick day or a mental health day to now be a not well enough to work day. So that people can take that book that on a system and, and feel that it's time that they can take if they need it rather than 
feeling un- but uncomfortable to the point where they don't and therefore don't go and get the rest or don't go and get the help. That is definitely a good initiative. And I, I haven't heard of something like that before too. So I can imagine how your employees felt when that came in, that it was something you knew you could you could have if you needed. Yeah, I, I can't take any credit for it. We've got um, a fantastic head of employee wellbeing, Shah, and a team that, that um, called Amy Includes, and it's a kind of community of purpose um, of people that are really passionate about inclusivity and, and well-being. So, you know, they've come up with this and they came up with the names on it. All my job is to do is, is to support that and, and make sure that everyone in the company embraces it. Sounds That sounds really good, actually, what you're doing for your employee. So what would you say have been some of the biggest highlights that you've experienced in your entire career? One of the things that I've taken great pride in is seeing some of the Amy people leave and become CEOs of their own startups. And that's happened consistently um, over my career. And I've really enjoyed helping them and supporting them on their journey. And all of them, I'm still counted as a mentor and someone, you know, we keep in touch and, you know, meet for dinners and, and drinks and advice. But Seeing people, you know, come on the the Amy journey. We are an inclusive, fun company, but we also want to win the league. We're a high-performing team that, that expect great things. And you end up attracting people who, you know, really want to push on or they get inspired by working with us for a while and they want to go off and do it on their own. And so... You know, I rather than see that as a threat and try and clip their wings, my view has been to fan the flames and support them in that. And seeing them go and 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 you know often outperform us is is a very very cool thing. I'd also say the learning, um, working and learning about different industries. So as a as a data and technology digital company. We work across lots of different sectors. Um, so things like banking insurance I've met, but manufacturing, engineering, we work with regulators, local authorities, government agencies, telcos, lots and lots of sectors. Whenever you work with them to solve a particular problem, to drive insights from their data, to transform some experiences they're looking to build for their customers, as a byproduct, you end up learning a lot about them and what they're doing. Um, we work a lot with the water industry and we've, we've, we've got very close to about half a dozen different water utility companies. And it's been incredible just learning about the, the work that they do and, and, and helping the, the passionate people of that industry deliver the sort of services they do to us. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's super inspiring. Yeah, it's always great working with people who are also really passionate about what they do even if it's something completely different to what you're doing yeah definitely and and I think as well you're right you end up feeding off that passion and that determination and you can see that that you know we've got a skill that applied to that can unlock something that that will be revolutionary for them and I've always said my my best days my happiest days are when I'm collaborating with either 
aim is to figure out a, a new idea or collaborating with customers to try and solve a particular challenge. And the ultimate at the end of that is to get a happy customer who tells you how good you are and how pleased they are with the support and expertise that we've given them. It's the best feeling ever. Yeah, I think that's all you really want as a founder, isn't it? <laughs> for other people to be happy with what you provide for them. Yeah, definitely. So I guess on the flip side of my last question, what would you say have been some of the biggest challenges in your entire career and how have you managed to overcome them? I say that when I first started work, um, the, the, the philosophy was you're first in the office, you're last to leave, suited and booted, sat at your desk. Um, you know, and, and if you think about where we are today, work from anywhere, do anything from anywhere. You know, the last time I wore a suit, I think it's either to a ball or or to a funeral. Um, so the world has changed culturally massively. And you've got to stay with those times. You've got to keep going. When I, one of the things that, an unexpected thing, I think, is things around the importance of language, around things like ethnicity, gender, sexuality. You know, being a being aware of bias in you as a founder, but also in your company and being able to understand that and, you know, react to it and respond to that and to drive, you know, thinking around diversity and getting that language right, you know, for, I guess, any leader, but especially, you know, those of us who've been around a while is tricky. So, you know, that's been a challenge, but, you know, for me, it's, it, that's about listening and learning and supporting people in your company that really do have a passion for it and fanning the flames and letting them get on and drive that for you and you, you're a support act. I think, you know, I've, when COVID came along, it was a scary time, but, you know, weird, I think most of us look back um, quietly at our home life lives and think that six months was magic. You know, we had a great time with our families. We were at home. I know that isn't for everyone. So I, I put that worn out there. But for me personally, I know for a lot of people, it was a very special time. And when I look back um, within our company as well, we continued to grow. We didn't lose anybody. We all came together much stronger, closer family. I think because of that, our communications, you know, increased. So what was a scary, difficult time ultimately helped define who we are and, and, and made us stronger. So, yeah, I think it's the, the difficult things that come along and test you are often the, the things when you crack it, make you who you are. I think a, lot, a big thing is also when you face challenges, when you get over them, you grow as a person or as a business or as a founder because you know that next time you face something like that, you're like, oh, I'm going to get through this. It's no longer that big, terrifying event that's happening you, because you know you've already gone through something like that or you've gone through something worse that it's like, okay, I know what happened last time. We can We can do it again. Yeah, I mean, as you say that, one thing that, I remember during COVID, one of our team did a, a session on unconscious bias. And from recollection, I think there were seven. 
Um, and I reflected on that list after being on the course with him. And I identified an example of all seven that I'd done and that I hadn't realized before I'd been on that course with him. And so I decided to share that with the whole company. We was doing a, a call every Friday at five o'clock during lockdown, just as a, as a means to keep everybody um, feeling close and, and, and in the picture. Um, and I remember prior to that call, feeling very nervous that I was going to get on there and tell everybody seven examples of, of, of my bias. But I think that's what you've got to do, right? You've just got to be, you've got to keep learning and, and keep talking about it. And I think if you do that, even if you make mistakes and get it wrong, I think people end up, you know, going with you and because everyone's learning too, right? I also think you acknowledging those unconscious bias and examples of it shows people that you want to learn and you want to change and it's not something that you learn or went, oh well, no one needs to know. You faced it head on and said, yeah, that happened, but now I want to move on and I want to be better. Yes. So what do you think the future holds for you and Amy? Do you have any exciting plans coming up? So we've been, the acceleration of the company in terms of growth, continues. Um, I wouldn't say it feels unstoppable because that's tempting fate, but the, the services business that we have is growing every two or three years at the moment. It's doubling, sorry, every two or three years. And our software business is doubling every year. So we're starting to think about the impact of that over the next three or four years and the scale of the company that we're going to become. So it's super exciting. Um, we just want to make sure that we maintain that whilst keeping our culture and our values close to us. Um, so, yeah, that that's cool. We're also um, acquiring lots more new customers, and that means that we're moving into markets and sectors that we haven't done before. Um, and learning new things is going to be interesting. We've started working with some global consultancy companies and some global system integrators who are now taking us into their customers in all different markets across the world. So in the Middle East, in North America, across Europe. So again, being able to work in different sectors is, is really interesting. I am presenting at UK Water Industry Summit. It's uh, water industries coming together to spend a couple of days to try and figure out how collaboration can solve some of their biggest challenges. So I'm looking forward to presenting a talk on data and AI at that. We're also um, hosting a, a fringe event at the AI Safety Summit um, at Bletchley Park. We're going to kind of live stream a summary of those two days and we've got panel and some guest speakers that are going to be talking about that. And then we're hosting an AI event at the House of Commons. So yeah, lots of cool plans and, and fun days ahead. Wow, that sounds like you're going to be very busy over the next coming months. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going to be a uphill climb, but... Yeah, definitely. So before I wrap it up, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Um, no, I think, you know, I, I, I listen to podcasts. I've listened to many different uh, people that have come on here. Um, I think the work that you're doing to try and bring real value and real lessons uh, down to earth to 
founders that are on their journey is 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 very very cool and i'm very glad you've invited me on i'm glad to be a part of this so thanks anna well thank you and thank you for being part of it too you've got a really interesting story and we really wanted to get you on to have a good chat about it all no worries thanks for inviting me it's been been a ball thank you If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out Startup Magazine's socials to stay up to date on the latest startups news. Grab a bowl and dig into this. The Serial Entrepreneur by Startups Magazine. We interview the most innovative startups at the moment, entrepreneurs that are making a mark and those dedicated to helping startups succeed.